You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Welcome to the 1862nd edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 20th of January 2022. The editor of this edition is Sheila Franklin, the producer is Joan Hogarth and your readers are Sue Harrington-Spear and David Palmer. We should also mention our processing teams who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We will repeat any telephone numbers that are in this edition at the end of the memory stick. And now, the headlines. MPs face local anger over PM's conduct. Swifter 101 response time pledge as police chiefs seek £10 council tax rise. Services in jeopardy if NHS staff go. Gentleman Jim, one of the last veterans of D-Day, dies aged 101. Conservative MPs say they have faced anger from constituents over rule-breaking parties held at Downing Street during lockdown, piling the pressure on Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Sue Gray's inquiry into Partygate could come at the end of this week, and MPs accept this could decide the PM's future. Suffolk MPs Dr David Dan Poulter and Peter Alder say if she doubts his account of not knowing about the parties, then his position will be untenable. Waveney MP Mr Alders said, I have received about 150 emails over the weekend on this subject. I have to say the overwhelming majority are not sympathetic to the PM. Central Suffolk and North Ipswich MP Dr Poulter had received about 60 to 70 letters by the end of last week from people genuinely upset about what is happening. Ipswich MP Tom Hunt said he was appalled at the Downing Street revelations, saying standards in public life matter. One senior Conservative from Ipswich, who was strong supporter during his leadership campaign in 2019, said they felt personally deeply let down. I just can't believe a thing, he says now. Suffolk County Councillor Ellen Bryce said some of the Conservative supporters she had met felt very let down and thought that the Prime Minister should stand down, but others felt the country should wait for the report to be published before any decision is taken. Increasing taxpayer funds to invest in control room improvements will pave the way for the wave uh, for swifter 101 response times, say Suffolk Police Chiefs. Suffolk Police and Crime Commissioner Tim Passmore has proposed a £10 increase for a band D property on the policing element of the 2022 Council Tax Bill, and this is to be discussed later this month at the Police and Crime Panel. This will fund a £1.4 million investment in the police control room to address 101 service concerns. During Friday's accountability performance panel, police bosses said victim satisfaction rates and response times will both improve quickly once the cash is invested. Latest data showed a drop in victim satisfaction at the first point of contact 
from 74.2% satisfaction at the end of October 2020 to 65.5% for the same period in 2021. Rob Jones, Suffolk Constabulary's Assistant Chief Constable, said, I think the return and the improvement would be really swift. We're training people up as they come in, and they are really attractive, interesting jobs to serve the public, so we think there is a really great employment opportunity there. With the technology investment, leadership and new roles that will go in, and we've already planned for how we'll spend that money if we get that investment. The improvement should be immediate and will be pretty dramatic by this time next year. The meeting was told that there were 17 control room vacancies at its peak during the last year, but 12 new recruits had started on the 101 service in the last few weeks. Assistant Chief Constable Jones said that was because some people experienced long waiting times on 101 calls, particularly when there were higher volumes of 999 calls, which had to be prioritised. Mr Passmore said this is a fundamental part of the proposal to be discussed at the Police and Crime Panel with the increase in council tax and the big investment programme, if it goes ahead, focused on the control room, better public engagement and more technology and digital platforms, as well as traditional means of communication. When we get to this programme, and I know it's a long-term investment that is not going to happen overnight, there will be considerably higher numbers of staff and officers in the control room. Patient services at Suffolk hospitals are in jeopardy, unions have warned, as hundreds of staff may have to leave over not getting double jabbed. In two weeks' time, on February the 3rd, all frontline staff will need to have at least their first dose if they are to meet the government's April the 1st deadline to be double vaccinated. And with a total of 596 staff at Ipswich and Colchester hospitals out of 11,016 staff not double jabbed as of December the 31st, unions have warned this could impact care. There are three, sorry, there are 235 staff not fully vaccinated at West Suffolk Hospital out of 5,416 NHS workers. ESNEFT, which runs Ipswich and Colchester hospitals, disputed these figures, claiming it has contacted 285 colleagues out of its 11,500 workforce, so vaccination records can be updated. This is coupled, Unison and the Royal College of Nursing, the RCN, say, with NHS staff absences related to COVID. Unison Eastern Regional Organiser Cheryl Godber said, the vaccine mandate is a headache the NHS just doesn't need. Suffolk trusts are already short on staff, but they will have no option but to comply with the law. Managers will have to let experienced people go, putting the running of safe services in jeopardy. Ms Godber urged the government to put its plan on hold so NHS staff can be persuaded to get jabbed. Dee Holbrook, RCN Senior Officer for Suffolk, Norfolk and North East Essex, agreed and added, We're concerned about the impact of the new law as high levels of staff absent due to COVID-19 are already leaving services so stretched that patient safety is at risk. Encouraging people to get vaccinated is the best way to boost vaccine take-up. A spokeswoman for WSFT said COVID-19 vaccines offers the best, offer the best protection for the Trust's mostly vaccinated staff. She added, we are continuing to support and encourage staff who have not yet been vaccinated to take up the offer. 
A supportive father and Barry St Edmund's last D-Day veteran has passed away aged 101. Tributes have been paid to World War II hero James William Palfrey, known as Jim, or Gentleman Jim, who died peacefully at home in the town on New Year's Day. Mr Palfrey was part of the contingent that landed on Gold Beach, Normandy, France, with the Suffolk Yeomanry in the huge military operation on the 6th of June 1944 to liberate Northwest Europe from the Nazis. The great-grandfather of five had been a gunner, tasked with taking out German tanks, and by the time he was demobbed in 1946, he'd risen to the rank of sergeant. His son Malcolm, aged 71, said he had been really, really lucky, as a bomb that hit his ship going to France for the D-Day invasion failed to explode. He spoke of his pride for his father, who was described by many people as a true gentleman. He said, he's been a great father for me. I live in Peterborough, and he would come over and help me. He's always been a big influence on me. He was just such a support, really. Mr Palfrey, who was a key part of the Berries and Edmunds branch of the Normandy Veterans Association, appeared at the Remembrance and D-Day events in his town, including last year. Malcolm said his military connections were a big part of his life. I cannot imagine a war lasting six years, he said. He joined the TA, the Territorial Army, before the war, and after the war he was in the TA well into his fifties. He'd been working for Berries and Edmunds-based brewer, Green King, when the government was calling on companies to sign their employers up to the TA, Malcolm said. Mr Palfrey trained at King's Road Barracks in the town and was tasked to the 55th Anti-Tank Regiment, the Suffolk Yeomanry Royal Artillery. Dad joined in 39, but didn't go over until D-Day. Come D-Day, he landed on Gold Beach, and the actual division was called the 49th Division. He added, Dad went through France, Belgium, Hollandy, Holland, and finally into Germany. He got demobbed in 46, and went straight back into the TA again, and went up to Warrant Officer. And now we move on to some general news. The internal critical incident declared at West Suffolk Hospital in Bury St Edmunds has ended, health leaders have confirmed. West Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust revealed it had made the decision at the start of January as 6.5% of the hospital's staff, which was more than 300 workers, were off sick. About half of the absences, 3.2%, were related to covid during the internal critical incident, West Suffolk Hospital said it would be opening additional beds for patients and have extra focus on discharging those who are ready to go home. However, a spokesman for West Suffolk Hospital confirmed the internal critical incident was stood down last Friday, with 6.2% of staff, 312 workers, are absent due to sickness. A total of 3.1% of workers are off due to COVID. So the highest proportion of staff off sick peaked at 7.8% on January the 6th, the spokesman added. Weekly coronavirus-related deaths in Suffolk have reached their highest point since last February, after 24 were recorded in seven days. The total for the week up to January the 12th includes all deaths recorded within 28 days of a positive COVID test in the county. The figure is the highest in Suffolk, since the week ending February 22, 2021, when there were 28 deaths 
within a seven-day time frame. However, they remain far below the middle of last January, when more than 100 people died in a week, at a time when only vaccination efforts were being ramped up. The latest data for Tuesday, January the 11th, revealed Ipswich, Colchester and West Suffolk hospitals were treating 194 patients with the virus between them, a rise from 150 the week before. However, this remains far below the peak number of the middle of last January, when the hospitals were treating a combined total of more than 700 COVID patients. A suspect in an attack that left a man with a facial wound that required hospital treatment has not yet been caught by police. A 28-year-old man has been out running on the Morton Hall estate in Bury St Edmunds at about 4.45pm on Monday, January the 3rd, when he was involved in an altercation with a man walking a dog. He attacked the victim by slashing him with an unknown. in an attack that left a man with a facial wound that required hospital treatment has not yet been caught by police. A 28-year-old man had been out running on the Morton Hall estate in Bury St Edmunds at about 4.45pm on Monday, January the 3rd, when he was involved in an altercation with a man walking a dog. He attacked the victim by slashing him with unknown weapon, causing a laceration above his eye that needed treatment at hospital. It happened in the Natteras Wood area near Mount Road. A spokesman for Suffolk Police said the suspect, who was unknown to the victim, remains outstanding. A Suffolk and Sabri spokesman said, Investigations into the incident have progressed, including house-to-house inquiries and the checking of CCTV footage, but as yet no clear new lines of inquiry have been established. The investigation remains ongoing. The suspect is described as wearing a light blue hooded top, black jeans or jogging bottoms, black woolen gloves and a black snood wrapped over his mouth and nose. He was about 5 foot 10 inches tall and the dog was described as like a black and white Staffordshire Bull Terrier. Joggers have spoken of feeling worried running in the area following the attack. Town Mayor Peter Thompson, who represents Morton Hall on Suffolk County Council, said it should be treated as an isolated incident, adding, people can feel safe in the community. I still feel very safe on Morton Hall, he said. It's still one of the safest places in the country. There isn't anything to suggest the wider public is any great danger than they were a couple of weeks ago. A man in his 20s was killed in a crash involving a van and a lorry on the A1088 in Elmswell on Wednesday 19th January. The tragedy came less than 24 hours after a man in his 40s died when a car left the road and collided with a tree near Ipswich. Police were called to the Elmswell crash shortly after 11.40am yesterday, near to the roundabout with the A14. The van driver, in his 20s, was confirmed to have died at the scene. The lorry driver suffered minor injuries. The road remained closed last night while accident investigators worked at the scene. 
News of the tragedy came shortly after a man in his 40s died following an accident on the B1079 near Bluntswood, Great Beelings, at about 2.35pm on Tuesday. A spokesman for Suffolk Police said, the ambulance service, air ambulance and a volunteer, volunteer paramedic from Suffolk Accident Rescue Service were also in attendance to the incident, where a white Kia left the road and collided with a tree. The driver and sole occupant of the vehicle, a man aged in his 40s, sustained life-threatening injuries and was taken to Ipswich Hospital, where he sadly died yesterday morning, Wednesday, January 19th. Any witnesses to the Elmsville crash are urged to call police, quoting CAD 102 of January 19th. The coordinator of Berry in Bloom is hoping fundraising can help finish off a project commemorating brave World War II bomber crews who worked and flew out of a nearby RAF base, which is also celebrating its 80th anniversary this year. David Irvin hopes the group, which was founded in 1986, can raise £10,000 to help finish the Flight of Peace roundabout which lays between Mount Road and Lady Miriam Way in Bury St Edmunds. The four-metre sculpture on the site, A Dove of Peace, was originally unveiled in 2016, with a five-pointed star around it filled in with white marble in December last year. Now David hopes the project can be fully completed with a new fundraising campaign. He said it would be fantastic to do that, as not only is it the 80th anniversary of RAF Bury St Edmunds, now Ruffham Airfield, Bury and Bloom is also working with Abbey 1000 this year, and we have the Queen's Platinum Jubilee as well. So to combine all of that together with this as well would be a really cool thing to do. The sculpture itself commemorates the American servicemen who flew and serviced Flying Fortress B-17 bombers from the base during the war. The A on the sculpture symbolises the 94th Bombardments Group, which flew 324 missions in the bombers from the airbase and were recognised by the letter A insignia on their tail fins. David said, We are hoping to lay 245 square metres of blue astroturf down around the star as a perfect background for the sculpture. It's a big project for us, which we hope will really underline the American connection to the base. We also hope that as well as generous people of the town, families of USAF servicemen will contribute to this lovely memorial as part of the 80th anniversary of RAF Bury St Edmunds. David said if the fundraising campaign was successful... They hope to unveil the finished project in June, and he said he would like to get RAF Mildenhall and other bases and stations nearby involved. The Museum of East Anglian Life in Stowmarket has announced it will change its name to the Food Museum. The centre, which celebrates everything about living in the east of England, said it is filling a gap in becoming the first permanent museum focused on food in the UK. It said the revamped museum will connect people with where food comes from and the impact of our choice after the name change is formalised in March. A number of events celebrating food and drink, including a beer and brewing festival, are frequently held at the museum near Stowmarket Town Centre. Jenny Cousins, director of the Museum of East Anglian Life, explained the decision had been made to bring the centre into the modern day and tell stories more people could relate to. She said... It's all about relevance. The museum was founded when people could remember going around on horse-drawn carriages. 
I think it's important that we represent what people remember today. This is a plan we first formulated back in 2018. We had a 10-year plan to change the site. The interesting thing about food is that it is culture. It opens up lots of different avenues of exploration, and we think this will be a different way of telling the story of East Anglia, except in people's stomachs. It's about being more expensive. Expansive, excuse me. It's the perfect place for this kind of museum. Suffolk is the breadbasket of England. We're asking people to come on a journey with us. A statement from the Museum of East Anglian Life said, The change is motivated by a commitment to interpret our collection in a way which is relevant to modern audiences. We think that it is important that we reflect the population issues and needs of 21st century Britain. Museums shouldn't be preserved in aspect. Food is culture, and it is surprising to us that there is no museum of food in the UK already. There are brewery tours, chocolate factories, but no museum dedicated to reflecting the heritage of something that all of us need every day, and which has preoccupied society for as long as people have existed. If you need oil to keep yourselves warm, take note of this next article. Hundreds of litres of heating fuel has been stolen from properties in Beck Row. The first theft took place at some point between 10pm on Saturday, January the 15th and Sunday, January the 16th from a garage in Rose Green Lane. A spokesperson for Suffolk Police said, The victim reports the theft of approximately 700 litres of heating oil from a tank behind a garage. A screw cup was removed and fuel was siphoned out. The second theft happened at a property in Heath Road where around 700 litres of heating fuel was stolen. It happened some point between December the 22nd and Thursday, January the 13th. Officers are, officers are suggesting that people check their fuel levels and the security of their tanks regularly. Green-fingered pupils at Haverhill Primary School have found an eco-friendly way to celebrate the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. Youngsters from Burton End Primary Academy planted 23 trees in the school grounds as part of the Queen's Green Canopy Plant-a-Tree for the Jubilee Initiative. Early years teacher Natalie Riley, the school's eco-lead, said this is part of the work of our newly appointed eco-committee, which has been set up to improve our school grounds. It's so important to plant trees and develop the children's awareness of their role in our lovely environment. It's a great way to start celebrating a special year and also to create a legacy for future generations of pupils. The children were supported by Haverhill Tree Wardens who donated the crabapple, hornbeam and whitebeam trees. Tree Warden Angela Wilson said they were delighted to support the school project and praised the enthusiasm of the pupils. Trading standards are urging the public to contact them following continued reports of so-called Nottingham knockers selling cleaning products. Reports have come in from Haverhill, Lavenham, Bungie, Ipswich, Stowmarket and Felixstowe, while last week cold callers claiming to be from Hull Prison were reported in Hardwick Lane, Bury St Edmunds. Sasha Watson, Community Engagement Officer with Suffolk Trading Standards, said there had been reports of rogue salesmen visiting homes in towns across Suffolk almost every month since January 2021. She said, Our advice is if, that if people are approached by them, it is 
to not interact with them at all and to close the door without giving them any money and to report the incident to trading standards immediately. The traders are dropped off around the country and typically claim to have come out of prison after serving time for violent crime or GBH to try and create a fear factor to entice residents to buy their goods. The Thetford Museum welcomed an author who has written a children's book about a princess with a close connection to the building. Ancient House Museum in White Hart Street hosted Sophia Ahmed for the launch of her book, My Story, Princess Sophia Dulip Singh, on Saturday. The princess, born at Elverdon Hall in 1876, was the sister of Prince Frederick Dulip Singh, who founded the museum. Sophia said... Princess Sophia's important role as a, as a suffragette has for so long been overlooked in history, so I was delighted to be exploring her story at the very museum founded by her brother. Museum Learning Officer Melissa Hawker said it was wonderful to see a children's book about the princess. She said visitors have been able to learn about Sophia, meet Sophia, get their book signed, and also found out about the princess and her suffragist sister, Princess Catherine, in our pop-up exhibitions. More than five in ten people who took part in a public survey into a controversial town centre cycle lane think it is either not working at all or not working well, the Berry Free Press can reveal. This compares with only two in ten who think it is working well or very well. The cycle lane in Risbygate Street, Berry St Edmunds, was created in September 2020 under emergency powers in line with the government drive to make cycling safer during the pandemic and for which Suffolk County Council won central funding. This meant lanes could be created using bollards immediately on a six-month trial basis with consultation to follow. A public survey was launched during the first six months which showed that of 1,145 respondents, 13.3% thought it was working very well. 9.4% thought it was working well and 13.4% were undecided. 21.6% thought it was not working well and 35.5% thought it was not working at all. The survey was extended for a further six months, however, as the County Council didn't feel responses gathered during the pandemic were sufficient to decide if it should be kept permanently. Some shopkeepers along the road were outraged, saying the lane had harmed their business was hardly used and had created traffic chaos. In November 2020, the council claimed the lane was becoming more popular, saying, Responses show that over the 11 months, public opinion on the scheme has become more positive, with 67% of responses in the last quarter, three months, showing that people thought the scheme was working well. However, a Freedom of Information request reveals that during the whole of the second six-month period of the 151 people who took part, 26.4% thought it was working very well, 8.6% thought it was working well, and 3.9% were undecided. 23.1% thought it was not working well, and 37.7% thought the scheme was not working at all. This shows, for the full 12-month period, combined 24.7% thought it was working very well or working well, 12.2% were undecided and a combined 57.3% thought it was not working well or not working at all. Suffolk County Council has been asked for comment. A robber pointed a taser at a member of staff 
while stealing money from the till of a shop in Mildenhall. The armed robbery occurred at about 7.35pm on Saturday, January the 15th at the McCall store in St John's Close. A spokesman for Suffolk Police said, a man approached the counter to pay for an item and when the till was opened to take the payment, he leaned across and stole money from the drawer while pointing what appeared to be a taser device at the member of staff. He then walked out of the store with the cash. A second man had exited the shop after buying some cigarettes immediately before this. Defectives and detectives are now probing whether this was linked to the subsequent robbery. On Sunday, January the 16th, police arrested a 22-year-old man from Mildenhall in connection with this incident. He was taken to Bury St Edmunds Police Investigation Centre for questioning and subsequently released on bail until Monday, February the 7th, pending further inquiries. Plans have been submitted to add a further 56 homes to a development in a Suffolk village. Original planning permission was granted in 2018 for up to 200 homes for land off Norton Road, Thurston. The new application for full planning permissions for a further 56 properties at the site, including 20 affordable homes, together with access, infrastructure, landscaping and amenity space. In a planning statement by Pegasus Design on behalf of applicants Lyndon Thurston LLP, the plan is described as a highly desirable place to live for the 21st century and beyond. It says the development of the site provides a unique opportunity to create a new neighbourhood, building on the distinctive character of the site. The proposals respect the local character, but also move the community towards a more sustainable future through an increase in housing choice. Mid-Suffolk District Council plans to discuss the application no later than early April. A long-standing market trader has said the loss of a Christmas... A long-standing market trader has said the loss of a Christmas fair that would pull in 130,000 visitors was the nail in the coffin for his stall. Darren Old brought Darren's cards to Bury St Edmunds Market for the last time on Saturday, January the 15th, after running it for 20 years. Mr Old, who until last year was chair of the National Market Traders Federation branch in the town, said his main reason for leaving the market was the cancellation of the Bury St Edmunds Christmas Fair. Organised by West Suffolk Council, the award-winning event, normally held over four days in November, has not gone ahead for the past two years. Mr Old said his turnover was 50% down in November 2021, compared to November 2019, the last time the fair was held, which he puts down to the loss of the festive event. West Suffolk Council said the fair could not go ahead due to issues around coronavirus and smaller festive events were organised instead. Mr Old said nothing compensated for that, adding the Bury St Edmunds Christmas Fair had also benefited businesses in the surrounding area. I know for some businesses it's not going to be a huge loss, but I know for a fact there's businesses in Bury, particularly independents who want that back. It's the nail in the coffin for me. Mr Old suggested the Christmas fair is not coming back and that Covid had just been an excuse to axe the event, but a West Suffolk Council spokesman said it's entirely wrong to suggest that any decision has been made with regard to Christmas events in Bury St Edmunds in 2022. We and our partners will be evaluating the success of the work that took place 
to put on a mix of events for Christmas 2021 and looking at our options. We're sorry Mr Old feels the way he does, but the pandemic meant that it would have been irresponsible to encourage 130,000 people into the town centre, especially at a time when so many other locations across the UK and Europe were cancelling their events due to rising COVID cases. Mr Old is also calling time on his stall so he can spend more time with his family at weekends and he will now focus on his business, looking after properties for letting agents. And now we turn to our letter section. And the first letter is from Barry Peters, the editor of the Berry Free Press, and links to our headline article about Gentleman Jim. So it's a final salute to Gentleman Jim. 2021 saw us lose some titans of the world. The likes of Bishop Desmond Tutu and Prince Philip head that list, their life stories reading like some work of wonderful fiction edged with real-world troubles. 2022 has also started in the same vein with the loss of a local hero of more modest origins. Gentleman Jim, James Wilfram Palfrey, died at home on New Year's Day, aged 101. He was one of the last surviving D-Day heroes. Jim had a long career with Brewer Green King, working in the footsteps of his father for almost 50 years. Even though Jim didn't see much live action, as his family say in our story, he's part of a generation for whom the history books will soon be the only reference point. But we should do everything we can to honour and remember the likes of Gentleman Jim and his peers who came back from war and became active members of society for decades. War has moved on in the intervening decades. We see it played out on computer screens and from rooms in the Pentagon. But Jim and his generation didn't have that luxury. Now a letter from Natalie Brooks, who's a registered nurse and the board chairman of RCN Easton. And she's writing about the reality of NHS problems. Sir, your readers will be aware of the well-documented pressures currently being experienced in health services, both locally and nationally. Our members providing frontline nursing care to patients, patients under extremely challenging circumstances are exhausted. They are aiming, as always, to provide the highest standards of safe and effective care at a time of high demand and staffing shortages. It would be easy to blame the current staffing pressures on the COVID-19 pandemic, a combination of more patients needing COVID treatment and rising staff sickness levels due to illness and isolation. This is certainly where the government would like to pin the game, the blame. The reality is that, is that the current problems have been a long time in the making. For more than a decade, the Royal College of Nursing has been warning that the NHS and wider health and care system is so short of nursing staff that patients do not always receive the safe and high standard of care they expect. Factors such as a loss of nurses from EU countries, changes to nursing student finance in 2016, a failure to award staff a fair pay rise and the continued lack of a coherent workforce plan that addresses how to retain experienced nurses as well as recruit new ones have all contributed to the extraordinary circumstances our members are now working under. While we all hope the pressures piled on by COVID-19 will soon start to subside again, the underlying workforce shortages Declining morale and unsustainable pressures will remain. In fact, they are driving nursing staff to seriously consider leaving the job they love. It is now imperative that our political leaders act on the concerns raised by the RCN 
our members and others working in health services. Nursing staff don't go into the profession to deliver care that they know is below the standard they want to provide and that patients and their families rightly expect, but they need the proper resources to de deliver a high standard of care. Please contact your MP and support us as we continue to promote the importance of safe staffing across the whole health and care system. Here, here. And now a letter from J.V. Appleton in Saxmundham, who writes, Can we trust politicians? Sir, as I see things, politicians are incompetent, not only in the UK, but throughout the world. The job of a politician is to look after the well-being of the general population. Sadly, that is not the case. We see cases all over the world where all they seem to do is to look after their own pockets. If the population keeps growing, so will pandemics. Throughout history, the UK has been cursed with invasions of foreign powers. It is not their armies, it is their diseases. We are lucky in the UK. We have each year moved forward. Many in poorer countries have not for various reasons. The poorest countries have the highest birth rates, also the highest mortality rates, and the oppressive governments have restricted education. And education is very important. So many parts of the world rely on the generosity of people for their well-being when their leaders live it up in luxury. If this does not change, humanity is in for a rough ride. I have lived through the Second World War when we stood alone against one of the world's largest armies. We blew a trumpet in 1939. The American government did not hear it until a year later, yet many of the American people stepped forward to fight. There were many American pilots who joined the RAF, they were known as the Eagle Squadron, and many flew out of Woodbridge while their own government dragged its feet. The politicians of today were not born and are not interested either. We were also lucky to have the backing of the members of the Empire countries, and at the time we had a leader who had lived life. How can a few years in university mean you know how to govern a country's population? That is like taking a naval cadet and putting him in charge of a ship. <clears throat> I think myself very lucky. When you started at the bottom and worked your way up, that is the only way to learn any job. As the saying goes, you can't run before you can walk. Carrying on with the political theme, a letter from Ashley Mayer of Melton, talking about safe seats and complacency. Sir, reading the East Anglian Daily Times, I am aware that there are sharp differences in views on the performance of Suffolk MPs. Some of them may be hard-working, enjoy the support of their constituency associations, but appear to communicate poorly with their constituents. Does holding a very safe seat lead to complacency? I believe that several of our MPs could actually go on holiday during an election campaign and still win their seat. And now Chris Plant from <coughs> Framingham writes on a completely different topic. Sir, I was interested <coughs> and saddened to read that choirmaster Gareth Malone has tinnitus. I was also surprised when he went on to say that when he went to see his doctor, he found himself having an MRI scan and seeing a consultant really quite quickly. Let me recount my experience. Like Gareth, I went to my doctor before COVID with the same <coughs> symptoms as him, i.e. ringing in one ear, which I assumed was tinnitus. This is where our paths diverge. I was told if I needed any treatment, I would have to employ a private company and pay. Anyway, I was wondering if I had... If I had sung a few bars of Ness and Dorma, I might have had a better outcome. Now a letter from V. Retty, uh, from, who lives in Woodbridge. 
saying, are we living, or asking, are we living in the same country? On reading two letters, East Anglian Daily Times, January the 8th, from John Dell and Ian Smith, I wonder if we're living in the same country. Mr Dell talks of the Exeter Hospital, whose doctors, nurses and carers include refugees and asylum seekers from 96 different countries. Doctors and nurses from war-torn lands are being fast-tracked into NHS hospitals throughout the UK and are doing wonderful work helping our country in this time of crisis and alleviate our 100,000-plus shortage of health workers. On December 17th, the BBC reported that refugee nurses are making new careers here in the Norfolk and Suffolk NHS. The letter from Mr Smith, however, seems to concentrate on a negative view by citing the cases of two young men one of whom was a 16-year-old radical fanatic bent on destruction of life, the other a young lad of 19 who said he was 17 in order to learn GCE English. Acts of terrorism in Great Britain over the past 20 years have predominantly been perpetrated by a fanatical minority of men and boys who have grown up in this country. Mr Dell gives an example of the wonderful contribution refugees and asylum seekers make to our society in time of need. Mr. Smith seems only to see fear and danger. Dr. Caroline Harper, CBE and CEO of Sightsavers, writes that a lottery is helping to transform lives. She says, as CEO of international development organisation Sightsavers, I see many examples of everyday hero local communities supporting societal challenges. Players of People's Postcode Lottery are one group in Suffolk whose goodwill astounds me. Since 2018, players across Britain have raised over £6.5 million for Sightsavers. This money has helped achieve nearly 9,000 cataract operations, 150,000-plus eye examinations and 1 million eyesight tests. A heartfelt thank you to players for helping transform lives through our eye health inclusive education and neglected tropical diseases projects. Any readers interested in supporting our vision of a world where no one is blind from avoidable causes and where people with disabilities can participate equally in society can visit www.sightsavers.org for more information. I will repeat that at the end of the tape. Thank you. A letter from Ian Smith, who lives in Bury St Edmunds, Um, writing about persecution of the unvaccinated. Sir, letters like those from Brian Scott send a chill down my spine. No vaccination, no jobs has already been introduced and should continue, he said, letters, January 5th. The unvaccinated should see their lives restricted. Brian writes regarding his experience of having to prove that he's been jabbed when attending games at Portman Road. I personally do not wish to live in a tyrannical or authoritarian society where where we are forced to show our papers. There may be many reasons why people choose not to take the jab. My general stance is no to tyranny and the persecution of the unvaccinated. No to the forced vaccinations and respect bodily autonomy. My concern remains over the frightening psychological shift that has taken place in this and other countries. Tim Coulson, Chief Executive of Unity School Partnerships, writes, We want your views on school changes. You may have seen in last week's Berry Free Press that Unity School's partnership 
has launched a public consultation into plans to reorganise four schools in Bury St Edmunds. I am writing to our local community to ask for their views. Under the plans, provision at Tollgate Primary School and County Upper School would be extended and Horringer Court Middle School and Wesley Middle Schools would close in August 2023. We understand and acknowledge that the middle school structure and three-tier system has benefited local students for a number of years and this is not something we are proposing lightly. Unfortunately, over the last few years, the number of families choosing middle schools has diminished, the knock-on effect being the type of education we can offer to students in the future. We believe it is the right time to convert these groups of schools into a primary and secondary model and harmonise admissions at age 11 across the town and across Suffolk. But we also want to stress that these are very much proposals. We've launched the consultation to gauge views from families, students, affected community groups, the wider community and many more. Public meetings where attendance must be booked in advance will be held on Thursday, January the 27th at Wesley Middle School, Monday, January the 31st at Horringer Courts Middle School and Wednesday, February the 2nd at County Upper School. You can also find out more about our plans via our consultation website, http forward slash consultation uk. I will also read this out again, where you can book your place at the public meeting and also take part in our consultation, which runs until Thursday, February the 17th. We do understand that these plans will be disappointing for some and acknowledged by others. That is why we urge you to take part in the consultation and share your views. Brian Davies from Bury St Edmunds says, Use the town's market or you risk losing it. Amongst many fine facilities offered to us by a move to Bury St Edmunds was the thriving twice-weekly market, offering an interesting mix of fruit and veg to street food and everything imaginable in between. It was therefore very sad to see online Photographs of Berry Town Centre taken on Saturday, depicting streets devoid of both market stalls and would-be customers. Market traders have always been a tough bunch, often, often putting up with the very worst weather Mother Nature can throw at them. I hope, therefore, these images prove to be a one-off and not a sign of the demise of what has for years been the very heartbeat of our town. Use it or lose it comes to mind. Alice Jefferson, from the head of the Emergency Responses Shelter Box, writes, Sending help to typhoon victims. The typhoon that hit the Philippines a few weeks ago has devastated a country that was already recovering and rebuilding from previous storms. At the disaster relief charity Shelter Box, we have team members on the ground there. With the help of the Rotary Club of Cebu, we have been distributing shelter kits and other essential items to people whose homes have been destroyed. We've already provided emergency aid like tarpaulins and solar lights to more than a 1,000 households, 5,000 people. We hope to help more than 8,000 more households whose homes have been destroyed. With more than half a million people still with nowhere to live, with the help of your readers, we hope to be able to help more families who haven't been able to return to their homes. To find out more about the relief effort and how to support our Typhoon Ray appeal, visit our website and I will read that one out later as well. Reverend Malcolm Hill in Sudbury writes about the source of problems lying in selfishness. A gas price rise of 50%, 
This outrageous prospect is a personal and global problem. As ever, a few people wield financial power over the vast majority who remain poor. Far away Kazakhstan is rich in oil, gas and precious metals. Yet in a violent uprising, people protest against the rising cost of fuel, just as US businesses invest vast finance there. The asset-rich Russian state holds European nations to ransom, causing the price rises. All this injustice and misery is caused by selfishness and greed. Remedy can only be achieved by a moral revolution leading to fairness for all. The authentic Jesus of Nazareth, not the short-cutting wonder man turning water into wine, rallied many people to care for others and share their talents and resources. Then poverty was overcome. Now the work of the churches, Jesus' body, is to rally our neighbours and nations in this conversion from selfishness to living for others. Let us all rise to the challenge. And Monica Ames from Berry St Edmunds writes with a plea, shed some light on my walk to the store. We now have a much improved Waitrose, which we all love and use, but what about some lights for those of us who walk from the apex through the dark passage in King's Road? It's currently not very safe for children, mums with pushchairs and the oldies. I don't know who this passage belongs to, but whoever it is, we would love to be able to see where we are going. Now, a last letter um, is heading itself Poor Cricket Performances from Clifford Davy in Stowmarket. Sir, Novak Djokovic was stopped from entering Australia due to non-jab problems. Non-jab problems, sorry. I cannot help thinking the English test cricketers, in view of their poor performances, might wish they had also been banned from entering. And now we move on to our first feature, uh, written by David Ellesmere, Labour leader of Ipswich Borough Council, who argues that Boris Johnson's rule-breaking has made our country a laughing stock. It's hard to express in words the contempt most people feel for Boris Johnson right now. Following weeks of revelations about rule-breaking, Downing Street parties before Christmas, it was hard to believe that there was still more to come out and that it would be even more shocking. After a series of increasingly implausible denials, last week saw hard evidence come to light in the form of an email invitation to Bring Your Own Booze Party in 10 Downing Street. Faced with, the whoops, sorry. Faced with the incontrovertible proof that he was personally implicated in a party that broke his own rules, Boris Johnson did the only thing he could, and the thing that comes most naturally to him. He lied. We are expected to believe that he didn't know anything about the invitation, that he still managed to attend the party he didn't know anything about. However, it was only for a little t and at the time, despite there being trestle tables groaning with food and alcohol, he thought it was a work event. He now realises, purely with the benefit of hindsight of course, that this was against the rules and he perhaps ought to have put a stop to it rather than joining in enthusiastically. Based on such a pack of lies, the apology he gave was worthless and certainly not, as some of his more sycophantic Conservative colleagues claim, sincere. But as bad as this was, the truly shocking revelation was about not one, but two rule-breaking parties the evening before Prince Philip's funeral. The details. A suitcase full of alcohol. A DJ in the basement. 
The drunken breaking of a child's swing should leave no one in any doubt that these raucous gatherings were against the rules. That they should happen on the eve of Prince Philip's funeral shows a breathtaking lack of respect. The picture of the Queen at the funeral of her husband of 74 years, sitting on her own, obeying the rules to the letter, was unbearably poignant, but for many of us was the ultimate sign that this was the unified national effort to defeat Covid, that we were all making sacrifices and genuinely were all in it together. What idiots Boris Johnson took us for! Clearly the rules were only ever meant for other people, not for him. Boris Johnson has lost all moral authority to lead our country. He has debased the office of Prime Minister. He has made Britain a laughing stock. He has broken the rules again and again, and he has lied and lied and lied. We don't need a report by Sue Gray to tell us this. Neither does he. If he had a shred of human decency, he would have resigned already. He won't, of course, which is why Conservative MPs need to put an end to this. If they don't care about the damage Boris Johnson is doing to our country, they should at least care about the damage being done to the Conservative Party. He's going to take them all down with him. Some are beginning to speak out, but most are cravenly keeping their heads down. Normally so full of moral certainty about rule-breaking and disrespect for the monarchy, they now need a civil servant to tell them what to think. <coughs> they may regard keeping quiet as their last, least bad option, but it's an act of moral cowardice and won't save them anyway. History will not judge kindly Conservative MPs who kept quiet in the face of such chaos and incompetence, and neither will voters. Dan Poulter puts the case for the need to change our TV licence fee. Mark Murphy, Nick Risby, Leslie Dolphin. All names that, are, that broadcast into our homes every day. Trusted sources of local news and companions to many of us as we eat our breakfasts, take the children to school and drive to and from work. So this week, as the government announced plans to radically reform the BBC and review the TV licence fee, we would do well to consider what impact these changes may have upon something that many of us value, our own BBC Radio Suffolk. Many people would support the government in freezing the annual licence fee over the next two years. Energy bills are rising and households face other costs as we experience the ongoing economic fallout of the pandemic in the form of rising inflation. Asking the BBC to do some belt tightening and to look for efficiencies at this time is reasonable and should have little or no impact on the quality of its programming. Certainly in recent times, it's understandable why some people may question the impartiality and focus of the BBC. For example, during the EU referendum and subsequent Brexit ne negotiations, the output of the corporation appeared to many to be biased towards the Remain campaign. Similarly, the BBC has set up a plethora of national television and radio channels that are targeted at non-mainstream audiences, primarily the metropolitan elite. There is a strong argument to reform the national output of the BBC to ensure that it's more representative of the views and interests of the whole of the country, not just London and the chattering classes. I also have little doubt from my own experience that parts of the BBC at a national level are overstaffed and inefficient. I regularly receive requests from different BBC news programmes, including Newsnight, the BBC News Channel and Radio 4's Today programme. Each different national news programme, even when they are on the same television channel or radio station, 
has a completely different production team. This is both unnecessary and expensive. At national level, BBC Channel bosses would do well to learn lessons from our own BBC Radio Suffolk, who run the station just as well, but on a lower budget and with much fewer staff. Whilst it's easy to make the case for the BBC at a national level to be run more efficiently and at lower cost, the argument for reform or even scrapping of the licence fee is far more complex. When the licence fee was introduced, the BBC had a virtual monopoly in UK broadcasting. But times have changed, and there are now hundreds of different television channels and radio stations. Many people, particularly young people, no longer watch television, and instead receive much of their news from social media and entertainment via, net, uh, via streaming services, such as Netflix, YouTube or Amazon Prime. This trend is only set to continue, and for some, the BBC plays little or no part in their lives. So it's understandable that people who do not use the BBC would consider the idea of paying a licence fee to be outdated. However, we also need to consider that we live in an age of social media which can often be filled with inaccuracies and misinformation, with perhaps one of the worst examples being the behaviour of the anti-vaccination movement in spreading lies and pseudo-science online. Surely, if there were a time where impartial and balanced news reporting was needed from a public service broadcaster, this is it. So the BBC is not perfect. It needs to cut its production costs, it needs reform, and to more accurately represent the interests of those living outside the metropolitan bubble, but there does remain an important role for a public service broadcaster in our country to present our news with integrity and accuracy. The best of the BBC can be found in our own BBC Radio Suffolk, <laughs> which is why I shall continue to support some form of a continuing licence fee. But for the BBC to survive, Broadcasting House needs to learn a lot of lessons from their local stations... Dan Poulter, by the way, is the MP for Central Suffolk and North Ipswich. And I think he has quite a lot of useful things to say, especially as I have a son who works for the BBC, so mm -hmm. I'm particularly interested. Right. Now we go on. Family connections to a former hotel in the Market Town's historic centre have been revealed. What was the Suffolk Hotel in Bury St Edmund's Butter Market is hoped to once again return to the hotel use following planning permission. The Grade 2 listed building at 38 Buttermarket was home to the Suffolk Hotel more than 20 years ago, but is now occupied by Waterstones, while the other retail unit is vacant and used to house the Edinburgh Woollen Mill. Beryl Sims, in her 70s from Bramford near Ipswich, said she was excited to see one of our articles on the plans for the former Suffolk Hotel. The front of the building dates back to the late 15th century and was part of an inn called Le Greyhound. The building was extensively remodelled in the 1830s and it was renamed the Suffolk Hotel. It was known by this name until the hotel closed in the 1990s. Mrs Sims said, My great-great-grandfather Joseph Cooper Beckett bought the Greyhound in the 1830s and was responsible for enlarging and improving the building and renaming it. His son was born in 1836 but then his wife died. He, ma he remarried a widow who had a daughter and they lived outside Bury in various form farms, lastly at Great Green Ruffham. When the second wife died in 1852, she was buried at Ruffham. It appears he then moved back to Bury where he died in 1867 and was buried with her in Ruffham. 
Apparently, the business had become rather run down as the hotel was sold quickly to pay off debts and the bequests in his will. The coming of the railway had no doubt affected the business of a town centre coaching inn. Mrs Sims said a few years ago she met with a distant relative who had traced her through a family history site. Together they went to Waterstones and a member of the staff took them on a tour of the upstairs where there was no furniture, just empty rooms. It was such a shame to see it all deteriorating, but it's wonderful to think it might once again be a hotel, she said. Mrs Sims has been researching her family history and links to the old Suffolk Hotel. She has a copy of a newspaper article when the hotel was sold, which she got from the record office in Bury St Edmunds. She believes this could date to 1869, when Thomas Cox was the owner. She also has a photo of the wedding of her mother's aunt, Laura Beckett, Joseph's granddaughter, to Tom Cooper, the sailor, in the early 1900s. I can imagine that when they got married she felt quite grand, marrying the son of the Suffolk Hotel. Then, after Joseph died, the family was left almost penniless, as he'd left a sum of money to his stepdaughter, so they had to sell the hotel to pay it, she said. She said by the time of this wedding photo, the only connection to the hotel was a family memory. My mother always told me that her family owned the hotel, but I couldn't find them in the records, she said. It wasn't until someone suggested I tried the rate books for Berry that I found them living at Ruffham and could trace back to roughly the time when he bought the premises. While planning permission has been granted for the building to return to hotel use, there is currently no hotel operator in place, said a spokesman for Redhead Architects. We are coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you've been given or put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to Bury St Edmunds, to the Bury Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. I also said I would read out the contact names and numbers if you wanted them. So, to find out more about the relief effort and how to support the Typhoon Ray appeal, you need to visit the website shelterbox.org. So that's quite easy. Then there's the Site Savers, which is www.sitesavers.org. And now we'll just tell you that News Talk will be back again next week. So until then, from Joan, Sheila, David and Sue, David. it's goodbye. Goodbye. been listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.